Hello, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter, and I'm happy to bring you articles from Time Magazine. I need to remind you that you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. We're going to start by finishing up some stuff from the January 22nd issue of Time Magazine. This headline is titled, Choose Your Stories Well, by Tom Rivet Karnak and Oliver Jeffers. Rivet Karnak, a member of the Time CO2 Advisory Council, is an environmental strategist and podcaster, and Jeffers is an artist and writer. Choosing Your Stories Well. So often, articles and essays such as this begin with a gathering of unnerving statistics. Most of us don't need those anymore. Changes brought about by the climate crisis are becoming more tangible with the passing of each year. We smell it in the smoke-tinged air. We feel it in the seasons gone askew. We exist in a place where all the problems of the universe are present. And the problems we have today really can seem insurmountable too vast for any of us to do anything about it. But that's just it. We think only of the inadequacy of what we alone can do. This is partly because, over the past several generations, we've been taught to think of ourselves as individuals, pitted against one another to take what we can while we can. But if we believe staving off catastrophe is futile, that belief infuses our thinking paralyzing our decisions. Conversely, the opposite is true. If our mindset shifts toward the realization that we, having invented all of the ways we go about modern life, can change those systems, we would arguably make it a sustainable future more likely. In other words, if we think we can't, or think we can, we're right. And we can, because alongside all the problems that exist only here on Earth, there also sit, conveniently, all the solutions we need. While so many of us argue about whose version of the climate story is right, others are just quietly problem-solving the myriad issues we face in practical terms, one by one. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of brave individuals communities, companies, and activists already shaping a regenerative future, getting out of the way of their own egos. Perhaps you are one of them. These are the people with the glint in their eyes and the seductive calls to action because they're already taking it. If we root our despair in climate change, then we must root our hopes in its solutions. It's time to intentionally put our efforts into creating and sharing stories of what is possible. Stories that bring out the most extraordinary aspects of humanity. Compassion, kindness, ingenuity, and creativity. These are the stories we can choose to tell. And we must choose to tell them together. The next article is under the heading of Ideas of the year. Headline, Make Sense, 
Make Peace by Dahlia Schneidlin, who is a political analyst, a columnist at Haaretz, and author of The Crooked Timber of Democracy in Israel. I believe in universal human worth, human rights of all people, natural rights, and international law. Flawed, hypocritical, and as ineffective as it can be, it's still a beacon. My values have long driven my support for peace, an end to Israeli occupation, equality, self-determination for Palestinians. That's still true. Even though right-wingers in Israel assume that left-wingers will now admit that on October 7th, Hamas proved that Palestinians cannot be trusted, that there is truly, oh, no, partner for peace. This is a strange argument. Since no left-winger ever saw Hamas as a friend, Hamas was always an enemy of peace. Right-wingers also argue October 7th proves that Hamas is embedded within Palestinian society. After all, once Hamas breached the barrier around Gaza, regular Palestinians joined in. And opinion polls among Palestinians show appalling levels of support for Hamas, especially since Israel's invasion. These are terrible truths. Why? has Hamas's strategy held appeal. Hamas has always championed military force to fight Israel, rather than negotiations, promising it can win the release of prisoners and champion the Palestinian cause. But consider the path of negotiations. Over decades, each round failed, for which each side bears some blame. In the meantime, Israeli occupation, settlements, and de facto annexation spread. The world largely moved on. Now, after the use of force, the Palestinian cause is on the global stage, and Israel has released hundreds of Palestinian prisoners, just as Hamas promised. But I'm not blaming Israel alone. It's the cycle of unresolved conflict that makes military force the strongest currency on both sides, the only game in town. The only way to stop speaking through violence is to end the conflict. But we tried peace, the right wing replies, and we tried land withdrawals. Look where they led us. This is wrong. Israel maintained tight control over Gaza from the outside and near-complete control over the West Bank without ever reaching a comprehensive political agreement. Negotiations, like Oslo, are not the same as reaching and implementing full peace agreements. When Israel has done that with Egypt and Jordan, it's been a remarkably enduring, if not warm, success. The right wing rarely accounts for how Israel's complete withdrawal from the Sinai Peninsula laid the foundation for a lasting peace. The right is right on one thing. Peace will not bring perfect security. Hamas unleashed the suicide bombings of the 1990s to destroy the Oslo process. In the 2000s, 
both Hamas and Fatah's Tanzim committed horrible attacks against civilians. But all that was in the wake of a failed process, not a result of peace. Peace cannot save all lives. Northern Ireland saw a gruesome bombing after the Good Friday Agreement. The U.S. has daily mass shootings. Norway had Anders Bering Breivik, who slaughtered 77 people. New Zealand had the Christchurch shooter. No one can delete human madness. But living under miserable conditions, endless conflict, zero freedom, over 45% unemployment in Gaza before the war, ruined individual and national pride. Sucks all sorts of people into the vortex of extremism who would otherwise have taken a different direction. Behavior that looks crazy in normal life seems suitable in a crazed, intolerable reality. Some Palestinians dubbed the wave of lone wolf attacks in 2015-16 the suicide intifada, driven mostly by youth who knew the Israelis would ex execute them on the spot. Nope, police cannot provide, peace cannot provide perfect security. But does ongoing military conflict do any better? In 2023, material conditions for Palestinians in Gaza had never been worse, and the diplomacy for Palestinian independence was never more dead. That's when Hamas committed the worst attack on Israel in the country's history. It's not a justification, but it's also not a coincidence. Peace requires the support of an international system that I know has failed so many times before, including after Hamas' sickening sexual assaults. But the current war will have a dreadful impact for generations to come. If life in Israel is a nightmare now, the nightmare is a thousand times worse in Gaza. The only paths forward are peace or a countdown to the next war. Anyone can see that, and everyone. The next article is a Q&A. Headline, Cash In on the Knowledge Bank. This is by Alanuel Samuels. A.J. Banga's approach to solving economic instability in the global south is a unique one. Using not just the financial resources of the World Bank, which he leads, to address global poverty but also the knowledge of member countries to facilitate collaboration on what works and what doesn't work. Question. How have you seen prospects for global growth change since COVID-19? Answer. The way that the economies of the world have come out of COVID-19 has actually created a further separation between some who are doing much better and others who are struggling. A number of countries took on debt when interest rates were low, and since then interest rates have gone up, and that means they're squeezing the expenditures they would put into quality of life for their people. Question. Why is that something that everyone should be concerned about, no matter where they live? Answer. 
The Global South has a higher percentage of young people than the Global North does. If, while those young people are growing up, they don't have access to clean air, clean water, health, and education, you end up with social instability domestically, or people become migrants. The second part is that they're not going to spend enough on climate adaptation and mitigation because they don't have the money. And we all share the same air. Question. You've spoken about a growing mistrust between the global north and south. What did you mean by that? During the pandemic, the emerging world got vaccines much later, in much smaller quantities. Then there's also the whole issue of the famous $100 billion per year that the Global North promised to the Global South for purposes of climate adaptation and mitigation. They feel that they took longer than promised with the money. Many countries in the Global South also feel that the rules of energy access aren't applied equally, saying that the Global South should not use natural gas, but how do they afford to get electricity to their people? So when you put all that together, it starts to add up to, I have to follow what you tell me. And that's not a good partnership. Question. What do you think the World Bank can do to address some of this mistrust? Answer. The World Bank style is changing its mission and vision from getting rid of poverty to getting rid of poverty on a livable planet. The idea is to bring both inequality and humanity versus nature into one perspective. That means the aperture by which the bank looks at things widens, and we can enable our people, our shareholders, and our knowledge to be applied to this intertwined perfect storm of challenges. It requires you to deal with poverty along with climate and fragility at the same time. Question. How specifically is the World Bank mobilizing its resources? Answer. We are a money bank. We gave out $100 billion plus last year to the poorest countries as well as middle-income countries to fight everything from inequality to climate change to food insecurity. But for many of the countries I met with, what was more important was our knowledge and our subject matter expertise. I call that the Knowledge Bank. We try and take the best practices we've learned over time from 189 countries and say, in this situation, this tactic works well. Can you imagine what it means for a country on the ground with limited capacity? Question. What is an example of the Knowledge Bank in action? Answer. I visited Peru, and I had never realized that Peru made great progress on stunting impaired growth that children experience from poor nutrition and disease. Then I discovered that Indonesia, which used to have a stunting issue because of malnutrition, had worked really hard with the World Bank to bring it down. It's one of the World Bank's largest healthcare financing projects. Indonesia has made some real progress. And where did we get our learning from? 
the work we did with the Peruvian government and with China, which made amazing progress on stunting. Question. That sounds like it could risk being a one-size-fits-all approach. Answer. The partnership framework starts with listening, then bringing what we understand. We can't tell them what to do. If we tell them, hey, do this, and they don't feel it's important, they're not going to do it. Our job is to help them figure out what their priorities should be and then contribute to that. The next article is under the same ideas of the year. It's another question and answer. Headline, lead by learning. Generative artificial intelligence became a focus for many businesses last year. Accenture CEO Julie Sweet believes that leaders must make their own version of deep learning a phrase more often applied to how AI processes data, a report in 2024. Question. You're constantly in dialogue with other CEOs about AI. What are those conversations centered on? Answer. There's been a real shift from AI being something theoretical and down the line to I urgently need to understand it. When we were at Davos last year, our research showed less than 10% of companies thought of themselves as reinventors. Today, that dialogue has completely shifted as generative AI, it, in a very tangible way, started opening the eyes of CEOs that AI is critically important. Question. How are you thinking about generative AI? We anchor not into Gen AI itself, because it's just a technology, but what it will enable. We have a lot of clients who have 1,000 ways to use AI. They've all gotten started, and they are not well educated. So CEOs are saying to me, how do I move from use cases to actually hitting that new performance frontier? The most important way to unlock the potential of AI is deep learning by humans. Everyone now is talking about the deep learning coming from AI. The biggest gap is the understanding of the C-suites of what is this technology? How do I even ask the right questions? And how do I really use it in my enterprise? We're still in a land where everyone's super excited about the tech and not connecting to the value. Deep learning by humans is the key to achieving the potential. And that means leadership training. At Davos this year, we're not doing a bunch of one-on-ones. We're completely throwing that playbook out. We're holding workshops for C-suite leaders. The second piece is how do you move from use case to value? That's all about using that deep learning to have a modular approach that says, I know I'm going to reinvent everything, but I need to know where is the most value now. Question, do you see a new type of leader emerging in this AI age? Answer, yes, 
because it's also one of the most exciting things that's happened. And Gen AI is truly understandable. You can touch it. You can feel it. And that means when I say deep learning of yourselves and your leaders is what's going to unlock potential, they're all in. We're actually launching a new education business because of it. Because the leaders see the potential and want to be first. So it's that rapid shift. Embracing a new technology trend and being super excited about it. And that is something different. Moving on now to another idea of the year headline. Get ready for the year ahead in AI. This is written by Will Henshaw. Just before ChatGPT was placed before the public in November of 2022, OpenAI's head of sales was informed that the company would be quietly releasing a low-key research preview which would not affect sales. Over 180 million users later, it's fair to say that forecasting the world of AI is difficult. But it wasn't only ChatGPT's success that was hard to foresee. An escalating AI race between companies and between countries. A U.S. Senate forum on the topic of doomsday scenarios. A dramatic boardroom ouster at the world's most prominent AI company. These events would have been extremely difficult to anticipate a year ago. AI's rapid technological advancement and the wild and varied reactions to it make predicting the future of the field not for the weak of heart. But Time magazine spoke with five experts who, undaunted by the task, bravely shared their ideas about the year ahead in AI. Electricity-Hungry Data Centers In 2023, the semiconductor chip shortage became the first physical manifestation of the AI boom. In 2024, electricity demands will become the second, predicts Dan Hendricks, Executive Director of the Center for AI Safety, a San Francisco-based nonprofit. Data centers account for roughly 1% of the world's electricity usage. In Ireland, which large tech companies favor partly for its low tax rates, data centers use almost a fifth of all electricity. Around 20% of global data center capacity is currently used for AI. This proportion is likely to increase sharply in 2024, as AI systems are trained and run on ever larger amounts of computational power. Companies will try, and indeed are already trying, to make deals with governments to secure a power supply, Hendricks suggests. You need the support of the government in some capacity to be getting that level of electricity. I won't say who, but some of these AI companies will speak with leaders of these states and try to make agreements about energy because their energy needs will just keep growing so substantially. Because oil is one of the most straightforward ways to power data centers, oil-rich countries in the Middle East with their willingness to pour money in weirder investments 
are likely to become more significant in the global competition for AI superiority, says Hendricks. In the way that we think of the U.S. and China as being relevant, probably the third most relevant region would be the Middle East, Hendricks says, of the AI landscape next year. The next item is coming through of disillusionment. All hype may have reached its high watermark in 2023, says Ruman Choudhury, the CEO and co-founder of Humane Intelligence, an AI testing nonprofit. We will hit the trough of disillusionment in 2024, she predicts. We're going to realize that this actually isn't this earth-shattering technology that we've been made to believe that it is. The most capable AI models are immense computational achievements, and the next generation is likely to be more capable still, she says. But the hype will collapse because no one has figured out what large language models are useful for. Still, the AI hype has been beneficial in that it spurred policymakers into action with immediate consequences for technologists, says Chowdhury. Everybody's going to pay attention to what's happening in politics in a way that nobody has before. For example, although the European Union's comprehensive AI law, the EU AI Act, won't come into force until 2026, companies will need to start preparing now, she says. Two years is going to pass very, very quickly in policy land. The next item, building bigger models. In December of 2023, Google DeepMind announced its latest AI model, Gemini Ultra. Google DeepMind did not reveal the amount of computational power, or compute, used to train the model, but Epic an AI forecasting organization, estimates it was trained using 90 septillion floating-point operations, likely more than any other model yet built. Gemini Ultra slightly outperformed OpenAI's GPT-4, which Epic estimates was trained using roughly one-fourth as much compute. Researchers have mapped the relationships between the amount of compute used to train a model and the model's ability to complete a given task, like predicting the next word, and have found that exponential increases in training compute will result in linear increases in performance. In other words, Gemini Ultra is about as good as researchers would have predicted said Epic's director, Jaime Sevilla. Companies will release larger models in 2024, which will be incrementally better again, he says. Chatbox will make fewer mistakes, for example. But from the user's perspective, it's not going to be like, wow, this is like a totally new game-changing capability. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman expects something similar speaking on the Joe Biden Joe Rogan podcast in October 
He predicted that the public reaction to future AI models would be akin to that for new iPhone releases. The next item is getting down to details. In the past decade, governments and companies churned out countless lists of ethical principles and strategies. But in 2023, spurred by the release of ChatGPT, things have become more definite, says Indalua Deborah Raji, a technologist at the Mozilla Foundation, a global internet freedom nonprofit. It seems as if there's finally this shift toward more concreteness. I think that that's long overdue. Raji hopes that will continue. I think things will become even more concrete. It would de be disappointing if we rolled back on some of the progress we made in 2023. However, the policy response, because it was catalyzed by the release of OpenAI's chat GPT, has been overly focused on generative AI, says Raji. There has been very little attention paid toward facial recognition risk assessment, even some of the online recommendations AI technologies underlying various platforms. Fortunately, President Biden's executive order instructed government agencies to develop plans for dealing with AI. For example, the order requires the Department of Health and Human Services to publish a plan that addresses the use of AI in public services and benefits. This is the kind of detailed, unglamorous work that is required, argues Raji. Hopefully, next year, the agencies and the domain-specific regulators will have built a little more awareness. Next, a growing divide. The International Telecommunications Unit estimates that around 2.6 billion people roughly a third of the world's population, cannot access the Internet. This digital divide may define who can benefit from AI, worries Bolar Ardeen Batsengal, a researcher at the University of Oxford and the former Mongolian Vice Minister of Digital Development and Communications. We have a lot of existing inequalities. Education inequality, income inequality, gender inequality. If we add the digital divide, the inequality gap will be impossible to narrow down. Even when users in developing countries are able to access AI, it is rarely developed with their needs in mind, says Batzengel. The technology is being developed, or algorithms are being written, by engineers who are mostly from the U.S. or from the developed countries. The response on the part of the wealthier countries developing AI has so far been inadequate, says Betzengel. I really haven't seen any initiative in terms of ensuring inclusivity, equality from AI's main stakeholders yet. I am really hoping that there will be Perhaps most concerning is the threat that AI-generated misinformation could pose to democracy. 
the 2024 is sizing up as the most significant election year in modern history. And elections in Bangladesh have reportedly been disrupted already. Deep fakes will be used enormously, adding to existing misinformation and disinformation, predicts Batsengel. One of the things I really hope to see from the main tech stakeholders is what is the technical way to prevent that, or at least recognize that it's a deep fake. The next article under the section of ideas of the A of the year of 2024 is titled Help People Where They Are. This was written by, by Belinda Luscombe. There's a special sort of disdain reserved for celebrities' charitable activities. Often scorned as vanity projects, long on intentions and PR, and short on delivery, foundations are widely regarded as a phase in the VIP life cycle, coming somewhere after lifestyle product, but before the children's book. For all the organizations that become powerhouses, Sean Penn's Core and Bono's One are well respected in their areas, just as many fail to thrive. The web address for Kanye West Charity for Arts Education, Donda's House, for example, now links to a, th a Thai gambling site. There are several reasons people might have suspected that Patricia Velasquez's organization, Yutaya, would be a wan effort. Velasquez was a very successful model black back when supermodels were a thing, and has had a decent acting career since then, most notably for roles in the Mummy franchise. But few people have the indelible charisma of Bono, or the flair for showmanship of Elton John. She's not crazy rich. Her childhood home was in such a poor neighborhood of Maracaibo, Venezuela, that she was not allowed to tell her school friends where she lived. And she takes her time. It wasn't until she was 44 and had already had a daughter with a former partner that she came out publicly as a lesbian. But Velasquez, age 23, who started Yutaya two decades ago, has something a lot of philanthropists do not have. Lineage. She is Yu, a member of the indigenous group that lives in the northern tip of South America in Colombia and in Venezuela. Her mother, Lailita Sempran Polanco, one of 12 children, was born among the Y.U., but was sent to Caracas by an uncle to be educated. Velasquez does not speak Y.U.Naki and hasn't lived among the Y.U., who are matrilineal, but she has many relatives there. It was a cousin who alerted her to the fact that one Wayu child was dying each day, mostly from malnutrition. Among the non-indigenous, I am Wayu, so there you have respect, she says. Among the Wayu, I am someone who is from there, who has no need to help but has come back to help. 
That's how they see it. Her foundation's ambition is modest. It wants to enhance the welfare of the 300,000 or so YU who live in Venezuela without undermining their way of life. She started by installing a water pump in one YU village, then founded an elementary school for about 30 kids. At the school, children needed lunch. So the organization developed a nutritional program which expanded to serve about 7,500 children in existing schools. As Venezuela has slipped further and further into economic and social dysfunction over 20 years, Wayutaya has expanded its work across the region, providing aid and building entrepreneurship, water, and agriculture programs that it estimates now reach more than 135,000 people directly and 400,000 people indirectly. Velasquez's pitch is that every child Wayutaya educates and feeds lowers the likelihood that their families will be forced to join the 7 million Venezuelans, almost a quarter of the population, who have left the country in recent years. Speaking at a fancy gala in New York City, which took place in October of 2023, but felt like the 90s, Sting played guitar, Hillary Clinton took questions, Sarah McLaughlin sang, Velasquez observed that it costs $1,500 each year to provide for a child in her school and enable their families to stay where they are. Meanwhile, according to New York City Mayor Eric Adams, Local taxpayers are shelling out an average of $383 a night for each household of asylum seekers arriving in the city, mostly from Venezuela. Even when farmers cannot survive and pay their bills and send their kids to school, they migrate to try and find better opportunities, says Rob Johnson, the CEO of Accesso, one of the organizations with which Wayutaya partners. Then, those farmers show up at borders. They show up in New York City. And like Patricia says, it becomes extremely costly for countries to manage them. But it also is a missed opportunity to let people stay where they want to stay. Accesso provides farmers with access to markets to sell their products and buys food from local farms instead of shipping in aid. While many schools in the country are empty, our schools and the schools we help are packed because they are getting food, says Velasquez. Many millions of people are leaving the country, but in this area that we're caring for, they're not leaving because more than 100 schools are getting food from excesso. Hunger is a particularly sore issue for Velasquez whose family did not always have enough to eat when she was young. Her parents were both teachers, who had done stints working for UNESCO in Paris and Mexico City, but returned to a hometown in Venezuela that had become extremely poor. Education was prioritized in the household, and Velasquez was at university when a friend from the pageant circuit slipped her a photo slipped her photo to a modeling scout who took her to Milan. Eventually, she broke into Paris, Tokyo, and 
New York City. Perhaps because the organization was not founded out of a fortune, Velasquez has nearly had to shut it down several times, she says. Once was right after she was on Celebrity Apprentice, an experience she hated in 2012. She got all her donors to chip in their annual giving for the event she organized. But her team did not win the challenge, and all the money she raised went to the competing charity. She says two Trump children made donations after the show. Four years ago, she had then decided to wrap it up. I had no money, she says. It was like I can't keep paying out more than $10,000 a month. She had asked lawyers to draft the paperwork, but then got a call from Jose Andres, the celebrity chef and food crisis Good Samaritan. He had food on the Colombian border and asked if she could distribute it on the Venezuelan side. She agreed. Through Andres, she met the Clintons, and through the Clinton Foundation, she met other big donors and institutions eager to work with somebody who had credibility on the ground in Venezuela, but who also understood major donors' appetites for accountability and governance. Wayu Tyra has an annual operating budget of less than $700,000, but has deals with such organizations as Excesso, Direct Relief for Medicine, and the Center for Disease Philanthropy for, for emergency funds. These partnerships meant Velasquez can use the money Wayutea raises to hire local employees thus addressing one of the lingering questions of aid organizations, said Accessos Johnson. How do we activate local communities rather than bring in foreign officers to get this stuff done? Most recently, she has helped set up a local water supply business, bought two farms, and brought Gustavo Dudamel's legendary El Sistema musical organization to YU schools. Because of the trust locals place in a fellow YU, Velasquez is able to work nimbly and efficiently in ways that bigger organizations often cannot. More than 80% of her staff are indigenous, an arrangement that offers employment opportunities and also clears all sorts of barriers. In 2020, Direct Relief sent us $123,161 worth of medicine and supplies, says Velasquez. We distributed it. It was easy. And then they sent us another one and another one. When the donations reached $3 million, Wayutaya got together with fellow medicine recipient Axion Solidaria. <coughs> We literally just made a map, says Velasquez. We said, where are you not going? And they were like, we haven't been able to go to the Amazon. We haven't been able to go to Margarita Island. We have so many connections, we told them we could get there. <clears throat> but sometimes being committed to the YU way of doing things has made helping more complicated. It means, for example, that when children are sick, and the local shaman suggests a cure, her team treads lightly. At what point do you come in and say, 
I have all this medicine from District Leaf, and I know that miss, this medicine can cure you, she asks. In some cases, she says, she hasn't been able to save people she could have. First, you have to create trust with them. I'm not going to come here and change your culture or change your beliefs. I'm going to work with you. And when you trust me, we can then do it together. Velasquez also has concerns about some YU traditions, including a sometimes year-long confinement of girls when they start to menstruate. But she feels teaching, rather than defunding, is the best form of cultural change. Education is the key, she says. Once she began getting food from Excesso and distributing it at rural schools, enrollment at those schools went up and stayed high. By helping these schools with other programs, we are creating thinkers, not only among the kids, but among the mothers too, she says. They become thinkers and start questioning themselves. Indigenous people are survivors, Velasquez points out, it doesn't matter how many wars are out there, how many cultures have disappeared. Indigenous communities have managed to remain, she says. There is a strength and a belief system in indigenous communities that I think is very important to maintain. And we will end our coverage of the January 22nd issue of Time Magazine at this point. I need to remind you that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Items were read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. And we will continue with our ideas of the year next time I read. <laughs>